I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, you as Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to, sorry, to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, uh, we are thinking today in our, about um, what's going to really make us happy. Where are we going to find great joy? And how do we make space in our lives for lasting joy? So um, I'll just show you what popped up on my Facebook feed the other day. I don't know if you can. Can you read that? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Here we go. Happiness comes to those who click. Um, From Lululemon, that great Canadian brand. Uh, And uh, shop, we made too much. Oh, no. I've got to help them. And when I help them by buying their stuff, I'm going to be really, really, really happy. So I tried. I clicked. And then I clicked again. And I kept going back. Like, honestly, I don't know why now every social media feed I have is full of Lululemon ads. Uh, my because I've been into their store and I've looked through everything. And I'm still not happy. And that might be because actually what I, my version of online shopping, what I get perverse delight in is filling up my cart and then not buying anything and going back and starting it all again and I can just see their data analytics people going nuts how do we get these customers to actually buy and close the deal and well you don't try and sell to me that's how Uh, but that's it right happiness comes to those who click what's it really saying why is it so clever what's it what's it telling us where are we going to find happiness In what? In material things, yeah. In stuff. In consumption. That's the real happiness. That's it, right? Um, Now, are they right? No. Sue says she never gets happy by buying anything. Is that right? You have your own online website? <laughs> don't, don't listen to you. Uh, that's right. Happiness comes when people click on your site and buy from you. Only yours. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, are they right? Yeah. 
I, I think one of the things that sometimes Christians do, and I'm not sure where you all are at on your spiritual journey, but sometimes we can make out like this stuff is all bad and, you know, like really consumption and buying stuff is going to, it's really bad, but God's really good. So, but actually, you know what? Uh, buying stuff can make you pretty happy. It really can. Let's be honest. It gives you a dopamine rush. It really does. So there's a little chemical, your brain lights up and you're, whoa, this is great. And good products and good services can add lots of value to, to our lives. Like there's, it's okay to be, to find happiness and joy. But we also know there's a bit of a lie underneath that, isn't there? Because we know that the happiness doesn't last. I mean, our economy wouldn't work if the happiness lasted, would it? Because <laughs> then you'd never buy again. Uh, but of course, it, it doesn't last. And it, and it still leaves you just a little bit empty. And so what we're going to think about, and, and the problem with that is, if we buy the half-truth that happiness comes to those who click, then we actually end up on a treadmill of trying to find happiness in stuff that never ultimately satisfies, and we get ourselves into all kinds of financial difficulty. Um, Australians have... Uh, the second highest level of personal debt in the world. Of course, when we think about click, we think of just consumer items. But um, we, we spend an enormous amount of money to put roofs over our heads, right? An extraordinary amount of money. And we are massively, 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 massively in debt because of that and a whole bunch of other factors. We're addicted to debt, and what debt does is it robs us of any space to move. The Bible's really clear that the debtor is the slave to the creditor. You, the person to whom you owe money is the person who controls you. You have no space to move. And uh, uh, we all know what that's like to varying degrees. So what we're trying to do in this series, and, and part of our spiritual journey is to say, how do we make space in our lives to find joy with more or less? Because if we find a place of lasting joy that comes to us, freeing us up to enjoy when we click, but also to be satisfied with our lives when we don't click, we can make financial decisions that can get us out of debt, keep us out of debt, and free us up. Give us space to be who God really wants us to be. Uh, so that's the goal. I mean, my goal as a church, if, I, if you said to me, what would be one of the key indicators of success for the spiritual transformation of this community, it would be that we were all debt-free. Have you ever heard that as a spiritual goal for a church? Like, that'd be cool, hey? Imagine that, completely debt-free. No consumer debt, no car debt, no housing debt. You live debt-free. That'd be, that'd be neat. Now, it may not be possible, but I think it creates space, right? And one of the steps, the most important steps towards that kind of a life is to learn to find joy, whether you have more or less. Um, uh, here's the question, how much is enough? Um, how many of you have watched the, um, the Marie Kondo show on Netflix you know, yeah, okay, I see those hands, you know, shame on you. No, no, we've watched a couple. Um, you know, we lived in North America for nearly five years, and um, like North Americans compulsively buy way too much stuff. 
because it's so cheap. And you see in that show her going into houses where there are just closets, rooms full of clothes, half of which still have the tags on because people have just compulsively bought and 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 bought. And yeah, how much is enough? How many, I mean, like really, like let's be honest, in terms of clothing, I mean, you really only need five outfits, don't you? Why do you need any more than that? You only need two pairs of shoes, one that is smart and one that's casual. On three, one to play your favorite sport in. You don't need any more than that, do you? Like really, how, how much do you need? How many gadgets do you need? Uh, actually, a lot. Um, uh, I mean, for me, how many books is enough? Like my, my particular vice is books. And actually, I, I, for me, it's a lim- I, I just go, I, you can never have enough books. I've, I own more books than I'll ever read, um, but I just feel good buying books and having them because one day I might read them. How much is enough? Yeah. In terms of our income, how much is enough? If I were to say to you, if I were to ask myself this, if I, which I regularly do, you know, Mark, how much money do I need? You know what my answer is always? Just a little bit more. Just a little more. Just a little more. Just a little more. So uh, how much is enough? There's a great spiritual battle in this to, to think about it. Think about how much stuff I have, how much money I have, and then say, how do I actually learn to be content? How do I learn to be content? So uh, on a self-rating scale, one is I am completely, utterly unhappy with my life. I live in a constant state of envy at what everyone else has, and I just... I am just continually driven by the desire for more. I'm completely lacking in contentment. And 10 is, I am I'm utterly content with every part of my life. And, and whether I have much or little, whether things I'm just, there is just a contentment that per- permeates everything all the time in every area. Where do you reckon you'd be on that scale of 1 to 10? Now, maybe it varies depending on the domain of your life. Maybe you're really content at work and you're really discontent with the state of your kids. That can happen. Maybe you're really content with your kids and really unhappy with your partner. (laughs) They're harder to trade in. Um, uh, Maybe you're really content with your financial situation but really discontented with your health. Like so, So it's complicated. But think about it this morning. Spiritually or... What would it take if you say you rated yourself overall a five? What do you reckon it would take to move you to a seven? And, and how much better would your life be if you were just a little more content, hey? How much better would your relationships be? Now, there's another thing to think about, obviously, going forward. Like, can you, can you be really, really content? Can you be a 10 on the contentment scale but still achieve anything in life? I think you can. I think you can work from a place of contentment, as we talked about last week, where you can know your, your flocks and your herds, and you can be a really good steward of what God's given you while still being deeply content. But it's not easy. That's the challenge. So how much is enough? Learn to be content. Um, and it's what I find we, in the Bible reading, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, and I find this fascinating because it makes so much sense of my life. Uh, Paul says this, I know how to live... Uh, on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret to living in every situation, 
whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And the thing that really struck me with this was um, that contentment is not a natural state of human being, is it? Contentment is not natural. Paul had to learn it. I found that a great relief. I, I don't know, I've thought about this and taught on this passage for years. Somehow this week it just struck me with great force. I thought, no wonder I battle if the Apostle Paul had to learn this. No wonder I'm still learning it. It's a constant fight. But it's, a, and it, but it's learnable. So as a church family, we need to learn this. It's not, we're not just born content. In fact, I think... Uh, we slide back into discontent, don't we? Our natural state is to undo the contentedness. And, and there's a multi-billion dollar marketing industry that is designed to help us be discontent all the time in all sorts of ways with all sorts of things. And so we've got to learn, okay, what does it mean? What's the secret? What's the secret to live whether you've got lots or you've got little? And we're going to look at a few of the secrets and then over the next couple of weeks, continue to think about this. Well, here's the first thing. Uh, refuse to trade yourself for stuff. See, I find this very helpful. Like, when I buy something, what I'm doing is giving away, I'm trading in a little bit of my life for this thing. Okay, here's how it works. Uh, what is money? Money is congealed life that I put in a, a way that I can then exchange with someone else for a bit of their congealed life or something that they have. It's a, it's a medium of exchange that congeals my life. So, I, how, so you earn money. How, how, what do I mean by congealed life? Well, the money I have in the bank is a function of every bit of my life, who I am, my genetic ancestry that's given me this particular makeup, my uh, environment in which I grew up, my congealed life is a function of all the teachers who've ever taught me anything, my whole education system, the whole, everything's come together and worked, it's a function of my energy, all the food I've consumed, all the medical support I've had to get to where I am today, everything I've done, and then it's the, the hours that I've worked, right? I've taken my life and I've, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to get this $10, $20, $100, whatever it is. And that's, that money, is a con that's me. It's a product that's a little stored in, in transferable mean, a medium, my life. Okay? And then what do I do with it? I click, and I go, I'll take my life, and I'll give away a bit of my life for a new pair of Lululemon pants. Is that a good trade? Well, it may be. Depends how much my life I'm wanting, you know, it costs me. Like it might only be five minutes of my life, but it's quite a bit, right? Like they're not cheap. Um, depends how long it lasts. If, if I don't have any other pants, that's a good thing. It's better to have pants than to walk down Darling Street naked. So yeah, you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to trade a bit of your life for a bit of stuff, for sure. But I find that, so do I really, like, you know, you can buy a car. How much of your life are you going to give up for a chunk of metal that depreciates and moves you from A to B? 
It's fascinating, hey? How much of our lives are we going to trade for stuff? And you, you don't think about it, right? Like everything you pay money for is a, is a giving away of your life. And you don't have that much of it, people. Like we just don't have that much life. Like it's going to go very fast. So why trade it for stuff? That's not the smartest thing. Um, but let's acknowledge straight away, right? Like the reason, one of the reasons we do it, particularly in our economy, is that brands are very powerful, right? One of the things marketers realized as we shifted, our economy shifted, uh, there was a structural shift from a um, demand-driven economy to a supply-driven economy. So as, as the Industrial Revolution kicked on, we developed the capacity to produce way more stuff than we actually needed. So in the past, uh, you know, in, in the good old days, something had value. You could only produce 10 widgets, but actually 20 people needed those widgets. So there was scarcity in production, and we all needed this stuff. Now you produce 20 widgets for every 10 customers who want a widget. So the market has discovered, ah, the way to get people to buy our widgets is by associating the widget with some uh, higher order need, particularly the need for identity and a whole bunch of associated things. So brands are powerful because what, a, what brand marketers say to us now is, if you associate yourself with this brand, if you have this, then you're this kind of person, right? So um, isn't it interesting that I chose the Lululemon brand? What does that say about me and my identity? I live in Balmain. Yeah. Actually, I came across it in Canada first, but live in Balmain. It's a, it's a high-end, it's cool, it's kind of, I don't know, I'm fit, I value health, I'm this kind of person. And it's great, everyone now knows that I'm this kind of person. Maybe. Uh, brands and, and what we wear and what we consume signal to ourselves who we are, how we think of ourselves, and they also signal to other people. Clothing, I have this discussion all the time with young people about clothing being a signaling mechanism. Like a, clothing is a signaling mechanism, right? You're just sending messages out to people who you are, what you value, what you want them to value in yourself. And you start to see that about all of life, but it's so, so powerful. And, and actually what what's adds to the power of the brand is as our sort of grounding in the Judeo-Christian worldview, our grounding in the sense that we are who we are because God has made us. You know, I'm a, my dad was a plumber, my granddad was a plumber, my great-granddad was a plumber in this village, so I'm a plumber, I'm going to be a plumber, God's given me the station in life, this is my identity, now what I've got to do is be a good plumber, that's it. Like, that's gone. Okay, we, don't, we can't create our identity, our sense of self is no longer given to us by our social situation, by the, the stability of the village that we're in. Now we have to create our identity. And you know this with your kids. That's why parents are so anxious about their kids' success at school because we know that, that, that the educational enterprise is actually a massively, or we think, an incredibly important stepping stone, not just into an ATAR and university, but into the creation of a worthwhile self. So now, without a foundation of God, we're actually in the business of creating ourselves. 
And brands step in and say, I can help you create a worthwhile self. I mean, all you've got to do is drive this kind of car, and that's, you're worthwhile now. You have a self. You matter. You count. Wear these clothes. Live in this part of town, not that part of town. Sydney's rife with that, by the way. I mean, our identity is so tribal, right? Just defined by where you live. I mean, it's just crazy. Like, it's just a house. A house is a house is a house. Like, it keeps the rain off and, you know, at one level. But, but it's so, but it gives us a self. So that's why it's powerful. So recognize the power. And then you say, okay, this is what's happening to me. What you've got to do then spiritually, the journey we're on is to say that the only way I'm going to be content is to build my sense of self on God's gaze. I've got to see who I am in the way that God sees me, not in the way other people see my signaling mechanisms. Like what matters is what God thinks of me. And I have to keep reminding myself what God thinks of me is way, way, way more important than what anyone else thinks of me. And then that starts to free me up because I'm not, I'm not captive to what other people think of me. Then I can be content, like, you know, matter what brands I wear or I don't wear. I mean, I'm free to wear nice brands if I want and consume this and do this and travel there and blah, blah, blah. But I'm also free not to, to be content. And that is a marvelous, wonderful thing. I've, you, and that's a spiritual battle. And if you haven't started down that track, let me invite you to say, this is a central part of what we do as a church is to fight this fight, to build ourselves, our sense of self on how God views us, not on not on anything else. Okay. Um, the other thing we have to recognize is that new is powerful. Like the dopamine rush we get from consuming something new is actually hardwired in us by God because we're made for God's eternally renewing love. In the book of Lamentations, which is this great lament in the Old Testament, it's this, this cry from God's Old Testament people, Old Covenant people. They, they are, they're in exile. They're being massacred. They're having the snot beaten out of them left, right, and center. Life is terrible. And in the middle of it, they say, the steadfast love of the Lord is new every morning. His mercies never cease. The only thing in the world that is eternally self-renewing is God's steadfast love for us. And we're made for that. That's the only thing. And, and the only way to be content is to come back to that self-renewing love. It's the only product or brand or good or service that we can consume that will always be new to us and fresh. Everything else gets old and stale. And so then we want something new. So spiritually and psychologically and neurochemically, understand the power, the allure of the new. And you fight it not by pretending that, that this newness doesn't have any allure for you. You fight it by what the Puritans call the expulsive effect, uh, the ex the expulsive effect of a new affection. So I have a greater love. I say, no, God's self-renewing love will actually, if I embrace that, it will drive out my longing for or my need for uh, the newness of products or brands or things or gadgets or gizmos. Like, but it's a spiritual battle, and you get it from God.
You recognize the fight? You get it from God. Um, this is an aside, by the way, but actually this is incredibly significant for keeping our marriages uh, healthy and alive and being content in marriage. We could do another whole sermon series on that, and, and maybe we should one day. But um, understanding <laughs> to contentedness in marriage and newness in marriage, it's, it's profound. This has massive relational implications. Um, uh, one of the interesting things that's happening in our economy at the moment, uh, when you read it, is, is millennials are moving from not buying as many goods and services as purchasing experiences, um, which is a real problem if you manufacture widgets, right? Um, millennials have looked at this. Widgets don't happen, but they're still into consumption. But what do they consume now? They consume experiences. So I'll, I'll delay buying a home, and I'll live with mum and dad. I'll bounce in and out of mum and dad's home. Why? So I can consume the ultimate experience, which is travel. Uh, this weird view that is relatively recent in human history that there is nothing that quite will help you grow and flourish as a human being as the experience of travel. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, why? I mean, I have another whole sermon on the theology of travel. Um, and one, one of the reasons why, is, by the way, is that this world is never home. We're always dissatisfied with wherever we are. Let me tell you, you know, we lived in Canada for nearly five years. Canada looks like a really great place to go right now. But when we were there, Sydney looked like a really great place to go. Why? Because wherever I am, I'm both home and not home. This world is not my home. So I always think if I go somewhere else, then I'll finally be home. You're going to never be home. Because we're made, we're made for an eternal home. We're made for a different home, a different world. And so what that gets leveraged into is this massive cult-like obsession with travel as the path to finding yourself. And I, I, of course, find it very funny because there's very little that is doing as much to damage the environment as uh, plane travel. But one will never let a, you know, will never expect a millennial to be, you know, kind of morally consistent and actually reduce their lifestyle choices to honor their virtue-signaling political commitments. Sorry, was that a bit pointed? <laughs> I just thought I'd... Can't, any millennials in the house? I can't say that tonight. I just thought I'd get it out now. I feel better. I feel better for it. It's, it's not really fair. Our cult, we love piling on the millennials. They're just wonderful and gorgeous people. But I do feel that, you know, let's not... And they know let's, we're, never, we're never consistent, so they're fine. We aren't. So we're made... All these experiences only satisfy for a time because we're made for, a, we're made for an experience of God and we're made for an experience of heaven. So any experience we purchase, this side of heaven that isn't God is ultimately not going to satisfy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be good for a while. Let me tell you, travel is fine. It's great. But man, it's not going to give you life in the way that you long for and we long for. So, uh, so contentment is you see that, you refuse to trade yourself for that, trading a big chunk of yourself for an overseas trip. Jet lag, um, gastrointestinal problems, coming back with an antibiotic-resistant gut infection, why would you do it? Bed bugs? Like, really? 
crowded airports, and everyone, everyone running around going, I want to go somewhere where there aren't tourists. I want to meet the locals, because I'm a tourist, but I'm not really, I'm not like them, I'm like a different kind of tourist. I'm like, I'm cool and hip, and I'm going to find the real authentic, and, and all the locals are going, we'll give you a real authentic this, and you know, and we're all the same, and then they come over here, and they do the same thing, and, and I'm taking my life, and I'm trading it for this, because what I really long for is God. What I really long for is heaven. So travel, but don't think that it'll give you life, and be content if you don't. Be content if you can or if you can't. So don't get into debt for it. That's the stupidest kind of debt. Isn't it? Like it is the stupidest borrowing money to travel. What? what? If you've ever done that, you are so stupid. <laughs> but that's, there's hope for you yet. You know, God loves stupid people. That's fine. I can just, ah, oh, oh man. Ah. <laughs> oh. Where was I? Oh, we're in church. Hang on. Um. <laughs> um, use money. Once you've refused to trade your, your, yourself for this stuff, have an approach to money, which is a congealed life that says it's there for you to use. Don't chase it and the things that it can buy. Don't give your heart to this. I mean incredible verse right the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many arrows I mean, how much damage is done in our world by people who just love money who chase money they chase, I want more and more and more uh, how many Corporate careers are ended by a stupid decision made because some person who spent 30 years being honorable and honest makes a decision because they just want to chase that little bit extra money. How many political careers have ended because politicians love money? It's everywhere, right? It's everywhere. How many church ministries have ended because... Religious people, clergy, pastors love money, right? How many marriages have ended because one or both parties love money more than they actually love each other? So they make all kinds of decisions, get into all kinds of debt, live with all kinds of stress because they love money. See, what we are tempted to do is use people to get money. But what we, God wants us to do is use money to serve people. Like, what's, if money is congealed life, right? What's the best thing I can do with my life? I can give it to someone else. I can pour my life into your life. Isn't that what God did for us, right? God took his life and... In his son Jesus Christ, he pours his life out for us. Isn't that interesting? He gives us life. He didn't come to give us money. He came to give us himself. So the best thing we can do is, uh, is understand that money is a means. It's not an end. And the best use of money is to use it to help other people flourish. 
to meet their basic needs, to help them grow, put a roof over their heads, food on their table, educate their kids. Like that, that's what matters, right? Help them come to know Jesus, help them be part of a healthy church. Money is a means, not an end. You have to keep saying that. And the end is people. The end is people in relationships. That's what we want to use our money to serve and to build. Um, it's okay to have money. We looked at that last week. There's nothing wrong with having money. It's wrong if you love it. If you're using what money can buy to build a sense of self. And it's wrong if you're, if you're, if you're using it as an end. It's just a means. It's a great means, um, but it's a, it's a terrible end. It's a terrible end. Uh, so the other, the final, or the, the second last thing to say about finding contentment, and it might seem paradoxical at this point, is to enjoy what I have. You might be thinking at this point, it's not somehow God wants us to be miserable and not enjoy the good things of this life. Well, that's not true either. Um, here's what the Kohelet, the writer in Ecclesiastes, talked about. We looked at this, uh, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago in church. It's a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. It's a good thing. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. Right? It's good. God gives us good things. Enjoy them. We're not, we're not anti-life. We're, we're embodied beings. God created the world. Everything that we have is a good gift from God. So you can enjoy it. Just don't worship it. You can enjoy it. Just don't live for it. Because it'll leave you. It'll go, right? Um, I find it very funny. Um, you know, the, the enjoyment of life is fleeting. So... Um, yeah, lots of people, as they get older, love red wine, right? They, all these guys get on about red wine and red wine and red wine. Of course, the funny thing is, you know, as you get older, your sense of smell and your taste buds deteriorate. So you actually aren't tasting very much anyway as you get older. It's just a... Because everything just gets bland. And really, the only hope for, as, as we age, to really enjoy... You just need to put some MSG in your red wine. That's really the only hope. But we all obsess about it, and but it's it's go, like for me, I'll take it's just a it's a great like everything goes, enjoy it while it's there, but it's gonna go. It's a, love it, and embrace the good things that God gives us. Accept it from God. Like we're not ascetics. I think God, but I mean I. I'm not going to labor this point because I actually don't think most of us here living in Belmain and Roselle struggle too much with this. Just looking at you, knowing you a little bit, <laughs> looking at myself. I don't struggle to enjoy life, right? I don't see a lot of horsehair shirts here. Most of us aren't particularly given to withholding good things from ourselves. Um, we could probably do better, but, uh, but, he, but if you are inclined now to think that God wants you to be miserable, no, no, God wants you to be content. And, uh, and isn't it true, like, it doesn't take a lot to enjoy life, like, you, know, you need a lot of money to enjoy being with people. I mean, I find that interesting. Um, over the years, in my family and friends, we've been in some very, very large houses and 
um, people with very large amounts of money. And, and you know the thing about a very large house is if the people inside of it don't get along and are miserable, it doesn't matter how big the house is, you're not going to enjoy it. And, and of course, the other thing is we've also been in some very, very, very modest houses. Uh, shacks, slums in various parts of the world. And you know what you discover there? If your relationships are strong and you get on well with each other, you can be very, very happy living in very, very, very humble situations. You can enjoy either. It really depends on your heart and your relationships and where you are. So be content. Enjoy what you have. I'm enjoying the heating this morning. Just putting it out there. And then in all of this, pursue a deeper joy. Right? Um, that's the path to contentment, to just say, no, none of this will really... It's good, but it's not going to make me ultimately happy. Don't settle for too little. This is the point C.S. Lewis made in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, our greatest problem is not that we want to be happy. Our greatest problem is we don't want to be happy enough. We are far too easily pleased. So I'll settle for the joy of getting uh, a, a Lululemon sweater on sale. And I'll, that's, that's my joy for this week. When, when C.S. Lewis would say to me and Jesus would say to me, Mark, don't, don't, look, don't settle for that. How's your, how's your joy in God been this week? Live for that. Pursue a deeper joy. That's what, so uh, Hebrews 12, talking about Jesus, it says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. So Jesus was driven by a deeper joy, the joy of living for his Father, the joy of giving up his life for us. That's the deepest joy that took Jesus to the cross. And so spiritually for you and I, the deepest joy we should live for is a joy of deep connection with God, obedience to the Father, intimacy with the Father, and laying our lives down for others. That's, that's the deepest joy. Connect with God, serve others. Don't, and that's far better than brands and products and even holidays. That's the joy. So, I'm going to pray. And then uh, we're going to have a time for some questions because we an answer. We might have a bit of a discussion. We've got some time before the kids come in and then we're going to sing uh, when the kids are in and, and go and have morning tea. But I thought, given that I've raised a lot of issues and some of these you may have some questions about, let's pray and then we'll take some questions. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for giving your life for us, for the joy set before you. You laid down your life for us. And because of that, we can connect with you deeply this morning. We can find true contentment in life. We can find space to love you and connect with you and live truly great lives. And I pray that you'll help us as a family, individually, as a church, to, uh, to be content and to live truly great lives for you. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Okay, uh, we may not have any questions, but questions, comments, thoughts, words of personal testimony. Anything that you want to agree with, disagree with, ask me about. Yes, Rolf.
the, the, the finding the battle for contentment happens in the white water of life. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, so you only get there in the challenges. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's key to this, right? You actually need a personal, powerful encounter with God in the Holy Spirit to actually translate this from just head stuff to lived stuff. Yeah, Sally. Can you have real joy without ever having suffered? What do people think? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, do I think suffering enhances joy? Oh, man. So my initial thought is, uh, at one level, suffering is just a given in life. So we're all going to suffer, aren't we? Like, just give it time. <laughs> it's, we came into this world through suffering, right? Childbirth, I'm told, is an experience of suffering. It's risky. It's painful. We, we enter the world in suffering, and by and large, we live with a life of suffering, and we will leave the world in suffering. So why do we try and avoid suffering? Yeah, well, because it hurts. <laughs> yeah. It, I don't, that's a good question, Sally. Why do we try? Well, I don't think suffering is the way it's meant to be. So I think God's plan for us is to heal and deal with and remove all the suffering. I think, if I'm hearing you right... We can make decisions to avoid pain and suffering that actually are bad for us spiritually and actually cause more suffering in the long term. So, um, we, so self-medicating, right? So, so life is hard. Uh, I feel uncomfortable. And we live in a culture now where actually suffer- we're not meant to feel any uncomfortable feelings. So um, neuropharmacology is the great big frontier culturally that we're facing, right? So I will use... I will use substances to change my brain chemistry so I feel good. At the moment, most of the chemicals we use are mostly illegal. I, I use caffeine and alcohol. Um, you know, start of the day, end of the day, that's what most of us do. They're both legal, and in, and in reasonable amounts, they're not harmful. Lots of people self-medicate through alcohol, and it becomes incredibly destructive. So I run from suffering rather than find God in the middle of it, and I do that in all kinds of ways. Um, but that is a big, I don't know, that's, I feel like there's like another three hours of discussion to have around that. <sighs> suffering can be redemptive. It pushes us to God because it strips away stuff, doesn't it? But suffering can actually also be crushing and kill us. So sometimes, you know, God will never, God will never tempt you beyond anything you can bear. I, I, I don't know if that was ever quoted to you when you were a teenager. It's a verse from Corinthians. I'm like, you've got to be very careful with that, man. I don't think that, because I think sometimes there's stuff that happens that you go, oh, crushes people. So, I don't know. It's complex. Yeah, Darren. Darren.
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Spot on. I always thought about it like this. Um, let me see if I can make this work. I always thought about um, pain and joy in life as like a, like a sine wave, right? Right? So, that's the, so if, I, um, if, I don't, if I don't want to feel the highs, or if I don't want to feel the lows, I've got to, I've got to compress it, right? So, so then I just end up with a life that looks like this. Right? Now, of course, like that is, that's actually clinically not good for one. That could be, you know, that's bipolar. Um, and you don't want that. Uh, though that's not uncommon. But, but if you, 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 can't, you, you can't get to here unless you're willing to get to there, I think. Oh, it is. You're sorry, it's just too th- it's Sorry, Jan, you can't see it from there. I can make it thicker. My fault. It's the color. Yeah, I don't know. I'm discontent with the technology this morning, people. I just have to tell you. Yeah, it might be difficult if you're colorblind. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, so, so that's. Sorry, I'm just drawing my life there. <laughs> yeah, is that a, Darren? Did I see it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, uh, if you grow up, adult children of dysfun- growing up in dysfunctional families typically don't do three things. If you grow up, you don't, you don't talk, you don't trust, you don't feel. So we limit our capacity to do that, given our, if we grow up in, in dysfunctional families. So for me, my journey spiritually, having grown up in the family I grew up in, was actually having to learn how to feel again. I don't, it's really annoying. I think I've learned it. I start crying now. It's very annoying. Like even talking about this now, I'm feeling sad. Like I could cry, right? Like I never used to be like that. It's ridiculous. But I actually think I'm also a little happier. I have more joy in God and in my family and in church. Yeah, it's gone. Oh, is joy that sort of go, is joy relative to suffering or is it absolute? Yes. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that interesting? I don't know because I don't know life without suffering. So I can't tell. Yeah. Yeah. So the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 
which I found incredibly helpful as a verse. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So the emotional texture of the Christian life, this side of heaven, is to be content and to be full of joy even while we're full of sorrow. And in fact, I found in life the older I get, the more sorrow I have because it's not just my sorrow now. I know more people. And the more people I know, the more suffering I encounter. It's just the way it is. And so that's hard. So spiritually, the journey is to find more and more joy even as I find more and more suffering. Um, and I, you, you, can't, I, you can't get away from that. You can medicate it, you can run from it, you can hide it, you can, you know, but in the end, it'll come. So I don't know, I, I think 